Great Expectations is part of the Earth 2 network of podcasts. Welcome to the Great Expectations Podcast. This is Jerry. And this is Sean. And this week we are going to talk about Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 5 and 4 Marvel Fanfare Issues, which have a great Savage Land story in them. And everyone knows how much I love the Savage Land. Everyone. Everyone. They do now. They do. They're going to. If you find somebody who doesn't know, tell them, for God's sake. It all started... With the great Greg Turner's appearance, opening my eyes to the greatness of Neil Adams and the introduction of Sauron. But before we get into Savage Land goodness, we need to discuss Steve Raker's second favorite comic book, Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 5. That's right. I don't know if that first part was true, but we are going to talk about Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 5. Ooh la la badoon. (laughs) Ooh la la badoon. Co-starring the Fantastic Four. But before we talk Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 5, we've got one other thing to take care of, and that is... Previously on X-Men. Previously, the X-Men had an adventure that led up to a fateful encounter with Magneto. I might... You were going to say Magneto just to mess with people. (laughs) No, because that's ridiculous. (laughs) I was going to say Balsacco. Oh. I wasn't going to say Magneto. So there was a meetup with Magneto on his secret island, and not the kind of secret island that Colossus likes. Not the sexy kind. I'm talking about the battle to the death kind. And you're going to hear all about that on our recently recorded short episode that we did for the Earth 2 Networks Anthology episode which you may or may not hear sometime soon. We will not name names, but there are certain podcasts that have not turned their segments in yet, and we are waiting for them before we can release our episode. But it is coming, and that will be episode 21.1 on your radio dial. Yeah. (laughs) You like that? I do. Made me feel like Ernie Carwell. Just for a second. X-Men! So now, let us delve in to the mighty, mighty worst title of a comic ever. Ooh la la, Badoon. That is a pretty terrible title. Yeah, I'm sure this has to be a reference to something, Sean, but... I'll be damned if I know what it is. The only ooh la la thing that I can think of is, uh... The Faces tune. Hmm. Maybe it's like Vidal Sassoon. Uh, 
Maybe. Maybe. I'm going to stick with the faces tune because now we have our show open. Well, all right. Everybody knows I love me some Rod Stewart. You love Rod. I do. You do. I really do. I've seen him in concert a bunch of times. I love that guy. So, uh, Sean, it seems that we're developing a pattern here where once a year they put out an annual and once a year they put in a call to Brent Anderson to come in and pencil it and he draws his ass off. And you end up with a giant, what is it, 32 pages of beautiful story? King size annual, buddy. 75 cents for all of this. The good old days. And this is, uh, just a really good looking comic book. Do you think, so you, okay, because when I read this, like, I'm not that familiar with Brett Anderson because my first introduction would have been when, uh, they released God Loves Man Kills for like the umpteenth time. Uh huh. In that fancy hardcover a few years ago, and it was the first time I ever read it. Loved it. Can't wait till we talk about that. Uh-huh. We will have a very special guest on that day. Yes, we will. CBR reviewer and local pal. That's right. Jim Johnson. So my introduction was through God Loves Man Kills. And I dug it, but when I was reading this, I was like, not as good as God Loves Man Kills. And if you're not familiar with Brett Anderson and you haven't read this issue or any of the Brett Anderson stuff that we talk about, perhaps you've read some of the most recent issues of Uncanny X-Men. Or all new. One of the two. Editor's note, the issue was all new X-Men number 21. It was the flashback to the, to God Loves Man Kills and he had It's so damn confusing. All new X-Men and Uncanny X-Men confuse me right now because like everybody was on a team. It's all the same. And then they just melded together. It's all the same. Anyways, you should be reading all new X-Men. You should be reading Uncanny X-Men. Brett Anderson did some fantastic recreation panels in there that looked like they had just, like, were extra pages from God Loves Man Kills. It was awesome. Anyways, we're not here to talk about God Loves Man Kills. We're We're here here to to think about about it while we talk about a really fun and kooky annual story, which is exactly what an annual should be. Yes. Uh, Adventure as you like it. Is this during the time period, because I know that I've talked to uh, our friend uh, Doug Zuiza, um, I have talked to him about how annuals used to be like, when he was a kid, they were like the big summer crossover, like, there weren't events, so it was like your annuals were where you got like the big, huge... Well, that was kind of a thing of the 90s, really. Yeah? I mean... Okay. I don't remember when the first no, one Atlantis was. Atlantis Attacks. I was thinking it was what Atlantis the Attacks. Yeah. Was that like 92 or something like but that? But they, they've started to kind of do that recently where they're trying to put out annuals and have them all kind of interconnect. At least three of them I've seen, but it's just yeah. done. So. You know, the one I really liked was the Alan Davis one that he did with Clandestine. Okay. It was a, uh, Doctor Strange, Wolverine, and FF. That sounds pretty cool. It was beautiful. Farmer inked it. It was beautiful. Hey, speaking of Alan Davis, um, have you currently been reading the Savage Hulk book? They're on order. Okay. It hasn't arrived yet, but as soon as I heard that he was drawing it, I ordered it. And wrote it. Oh, right. Yep, yep. And it takes place directly after X-Men number 65. Really? Yes. Interesting. And it's I have two issues so far, and it's been really good. 
I really liked it. Awesome. So it's taking place from like where we talked with Turner way back, whatever so wait, episode that was. So as soon as we're done reading that, that, uh, story arc, we're gonna have to sit down and read X-Men The Hidden Years. Yes. Because that would be like the next thing sequentially. Yeah. Ooh. I know, pretty good, right? Yeah. Sorry. Alan Davis, man, that guy is a beast. I know, I was, uh, the other night, I was like making dinner and I got totally distracted because that Nightcrawler picture that I have is like it, right by my front door. But you mean I, that Nightcrawler sketch that Alan Davis did for you? Yes. That, that I wouldn't have got if it wasn't for you because you talked me into it and took me to the show. Oh, I don't know if I want to get a sketch of Nightcrawler for a mere $50 from one of the all-time greats. I know. I'm a weird dude. I'm a weird dude. Um, but I found myself staring at it for like 20 minutes the other day and I was like, that is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. So I can only imagine what you do to your GM pieces. If I have one. You don't have to imagine. Yeah. It's just... I, I've done it. Whatever you're thinking, I've done it. Well, oh. I'm actually thinking, it's a goodbye horses is playing and, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. You've talked and you're, you're probably wearing the outfit that Kitty Pride puts on at the midway point of this annual. I'd fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> Don't you dare look at the timestamp to cut that out. <laughs> That's gonna become the new that old bitch. Yeah. I every time you mention a comic crush, I fuck me. All right. So where were we? We're at the complete opposite of bikini-clad heroines, which is we're gonna get there. Sue Storm in an apron, screaming at the fellas. Oh man. This is a drag because yeah. I don't like domestic Sue. Yeah, I like, I, got, I like kicking ass Sue. I got to admit, when I was reading this, I was like, "Oh, we're at this point in Sue Storms." Yeah. See, this is, and I mean, she does make a point of saying, "Okay, so she's tearing into them because typical Reed faction." He's, oh, I'm sorry, we open up with the FF, we're and Reed and Ben and and uh, Johnny are in Reed's lab. As usual. And, um, Reed is working on something, he's gotten distracted, and they've missed dinner. And Sue is mad. And, and so this is the part of the story where I think, okay, maybe this doesn't hold up. You know, like, you want to say the good stories still hold up today, but this whole sexual politics part of it probably does not hold up. But she does make a point of saying that she doesn't usually cook. And, and this is, tonight is an exception. And she went through all the effort, and then they forgot to show up for dinner. And she's P.O.'d. I would be. I would be. I would be, too. Yeah. Cooking is not easy, and it's not fun. Look at Reed smoking a pipe. (laughs) Man. Gonna get wrinklier, Reed. No, he's made of rubber. He's fine. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so page two, this, this page is really weird to me. Uh, Brett Anderson is attacking this story from a lot of weird angles and and sue appears in four of the five panels and in three of them she's got her back to the camera and i don't know why that's worth mentioning on the podcast but it just struck me as weird it stood out and it's not like gratuitous butt shot back to the camera it's right right. i, I don't know 
I don't know. It just it stood out to me for some reason. And he's got like sixty four pages to draw. He doesn't have time to get the faces draw right. His faces. That's Bob McCloud's job. Yeah. Did we mention the creative team behind this issue? We did not. So we did mention Brent Anderson was called into pencil it. Bob McCloud, our new favorite, inked the story. Tom Orzakowski, the normal letterer for the X Men, was lettered the book, and Glynis now Ween is the colorist. We should be used to seeing that by now. Louise Jones is our editor. And she kicks ass and I love her. And there you have it. So, this is a beautiful book as I've said before. And it's in no small measure due to Bob McLeod's inks. But because he draws such beautiful faces and, and they draw such an attractive Sue, I guess that's why it stood out to me that, that they were drawing the back of her head so much. Right. And um, I much prefer this look to uh, John Burns' short-haired '80s yeah. Sue Richards, which I, ugh, I was never a fan of that. So um, Sue storms off, angry, and as she's walking past the office, she hears the uh, the radio scanner that searches for trouble uh, announce that there's a crazy woman running through New York City with a laser gun. And she tells the FF and they scramble to investigate. And at that point, we are introduced to a Shi'ar... She's an Imperial Pathfinder. Yeah. She's one of the finest scouts in the Shi'ar Starfleet. And I don't, I don't know, know if... how, I don't know how to, res- res- like, I don't know how to say her name. Well, I was gonna say, uh, I would guess that her Desindri? name is pronounced, pronounced Desindri. Yeah, that's right. But it, we probably don't have to worry about it too much because we won't be spending a whole lot of time with this unfortunate woman. Oh, is um, it typical Claremont fashion where some? <laughs> yes, oh, man. yes. You get to know her just well enough to miss her when she's gone. So uh, her clothing has been strategically torn from her shoulders, and she is running from an unseen assailant and turning and firing seemingly at random people on the street. Including a poor brother whose boombox has just been completely destroyed. Uh, but she ducks behind a car just in time to see two laser bolts appear from nowhere and strike the car as she ducks behind it. And she pulls out her sweet looking ray gun that has a giant scope on it that reveals three invisible Badoon soldiers that have been pursuing her. Yeah. Nobody else can see them, of course, and uh, Johnny shows up and thinks she's lost her damn mind. The FF are on the scene, and they, they, they stop her, Reed wraps her up, and secures her, She and pulls her gun away. And at that point, you know, she's so exhausted, she finally collapses. And she tells Reed, listen, so little time. Archon, Badoon threaten, Lilandra. Danger must find tell Xavier. And then, so fucking creepy, the Badoon, cloaked, walk right up to her, put a gun to her head, completely unseen by the FF, and shoot her to death. I love the fact that he just goes, you've said enough, female. (laughs) Now, Sean, you may not be really familiar with the Badoon. I'm not. But having read The Guardians of the Galaxy with Steve Raker on Marvel Noise, I didn't write down the episode, but um, 
I can tell you that the Badoon, these are males, see? Okay. And all the males live on the planet together. And they have a very bad relationship with all the females who live on a completely different planet. And then once, like, every seven years or something, they are overcome by their animalistic urge to procreate. And they find each other and they have mad animal sex. And then they hate each other again and they split up. It sounds pretty awesome. Familiar, um, almost. Yeah, there's probably not a more sexist group of individuals in the galaxy than the Badoon. So when they say things like, you've said enough, woman, that's why. Okay, fair enough. He was just raised that way. So uh, after zapping this poor Desindri, they turn their weapons on the FF and blast the shit out of them. Except for Susan, who was heads up. And having picked up the ray gun, she also formed a force field around herself and saved her own ass. You think with how much you just described them as hating females that they totally would have aimed for Sue more. Like they would have made sure that they got her. Yeah. Well, perhaps we're close to that seven year. Maybe. I've been doing her looking at Sue. Well, they get real close to that seven year later in the episode, uh, in the issue, but I don't want to spoil anything. The cops show up, right, to save the day. The Badoon decide there are too many cops coming, we need to get out of here. And they snatch up the three unconscious male members of the team. Sue was knocked down by the force of the blasts. And in doing so, she happened to look through the sight of the gun and saw the Badoon there. And they were revealed to her. So, So the cops show up and they're like, hey you, freeze, lady. And she's like, I'm out of here. She turns invisible. And walks off with the gun. She pulled a real spider woman. Yes, she And bailed did. on the cops. Yeah. In true Marvel heroine fashion. To true Chris, Chris Claremont fashion. Yeah. This is what, this is his move for the ladies of the X universe. Chris Claremont hates the fuzz. Oh, so I was gonna mention that we've seen the Badoon pull this invisibility trick before in Silver Surfer number two. Climb into the Wayback Machine, folks. That's right, Silver Age Comics. Is um, it weird, like, when I was reading this and, and we got to, like, obviously, like, Dysentery mentions Archon. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, like, he played such a big part in Annual Number 3. Mm-hmm. And he's back here again. Which I thought well, was cool. I did too, but I was like, when was the last time anyone heard of that character? Yeah. I wonder if he's still out there. Right. If he's dead. We probably should have looked into that before we sat down. Or maybe place. he's going to come up in the rest of the reread. You I never hope know. so. He might pop up. They kind of... Well, I don't want to get too far ahead. But, right. um It seems like we have an answer. At the end. Really? I, I mean, it's open-ended for sure, but it seems like um they're not going to go out of their way to run into him again. Okay. Excuse me. Uh, so, cut to the X-Men and Archon in furious pitched battle against the Badoon. Bodies piling up everywhere, storm killing indiscriminately. Well, discriminately, she's killing the shit out of Badoon. Even Nightcrawler's got one of the ray guns and he's blasting the holy hell out of him. Yeah. And they are, uh, 
forced to the top of a, a hill and they it seems like the deck is stacked against them and they're probably going to start dropping any second and Storm wakes up. It's all just a vivid nightmare. And she tells us that she's been having this nightmare repeatedly for a fortnight. Each night growing more vivid. So she goes down to have a cup of hot cocoa because she that's feels what like do. that's what they should do. And Susan staggers into the house carrying Franklin. And uh after she recovers, thanks to the help of Moira McTaggart, she fills him in on what's happened. And Sean, do you notice who's in the room with them? It's Scott. Scott Summers is back with the team. Yeah. And Professor X uh falls back in old habits and he defers to Scott and says, Scott, you're the senior member of the team. What do you think we should do? Can I just stop you for a second? And part of that first top panel of the page shows uh, little Franklin Richards sitting on the floor and he's playing with a toy airplane. Yes. And there's such like a tiny, like wonderful moment because like Peter's kind of sitting there like he's sitting cross-legged on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and Kitty's there too. And I know that Kitty's only 13 and a half at this point. But rereading it, like knowing obviously the history of them now, I just thought it was a really, like, the most normal moment for those two. Yeah. Like, there they are, just like playing with this kid, and you start to realize that, like, they are kids too, and that one day they might be in that situation with their own little Franklin. I don't know. I just thought it was a nice little moment. Yeah, I, you know, I, when I was writing notes, for the show, I, I I picked up on it too, and you know what I I didn't pick up on was the connection to Days of Future Past. Oh yeah, I mean, they these three yeah grow up together and under the worst circumstances in that story. So it just seems like uh, no matter what, there's a connection between them. You know, Franklin show you can see that he's comfortable with Peter. He's got his hand on Peter's leg, and you know. They're engaging him, and I, I thought it was a really sweet scene. And yeah. Now I feel dumb, and I just blew right past it. I'm sorry. Meanwhile... That's why we're a duo. That's right. Meanwhile, they're all inhaling secondhand smoke from that dickhead Wolverine. Yep. Oh, that's cool. I've got a healing factor. Fuck the rest of you guys. That's right. That's right. So Scott says, we have to help. And Susan's like, yeah, I want your help. And I'm going back no matter what, because I'm going to get my husband. Yeah. And there are thoughts about um collecting the the to help, but they are off on another mission conveniently. But I I like the idea that they would think to ask them. Yeah, cuz the would never think to ask the X-Men cuz they're dicks. Ooh. So they they pack up for the trip and Kitty excitedly dashes off to show off her new costume since the last one was so hideous. And this one is, whew, it's some, it's definitely an improvement, but that's not to say it's good. Yeah. It's, I like um, that Xavier is quite diplomatic about telling her that the regular uniform will be fine. <laughs> yeah. It's cute. And she tells them they have no taste. Yeah. So Colossus is is happy to pull out his his bag of Archon's Thunderbolts and grabs four yellow ones because that's the secret key and teleports them away. So they arrive on Archon's world and things are jacked up. They're greeted by Sasha, 
who uh, was she made an appearance in Annual Three, right? Yeah, she's the apprentice to Archon's Grand Vizier. Right, <laughs> his Grand Vagine. <laughs> so um, they are revisiting a place that they spent some time in uh, in Annual Number Three, but it looks very differently now because. The place is completely trashed, and it is trashed because the Badoon have arrived in force, and they have pretty much wiped the city out. And so Sasha is like, now that you X-Men are here, we've got enough muscle that we can reform our army and move in and crush them. And Wolverine says, just like that, huh, darling? Not a hope. And Storm gives him this sideways glance with pursed lips, and she's like, as ever, Logan, you are the soul of tact. <laughs> so just the uh, interaction between those two whenever he's being an a-hole is always so good. Yeah. And he just tells her, I'm a realist. There's no way we can pull this off. But they think it might be workable. Scott starts putting together a plan. And then uh, they decide they're going to do it in Cyclops' classic fashion. They're going to split up. We're facing insurmountable odds. Let's spread out. So his plan is that uh, ladies of the realm have been able to enter the Badoon's palace unhindered because they like attractive ladies. So he tells Storm and Sue that they're going to be heading into the city with... Because they're the pretty ones. And that Cyclops and Colossus and poor, awkward teenage Kitty will be the backup. And and so it's their job to try to free Archon and any other prisoners that might be at the palace. And Nightcrawler, Wolverine, and Sasha will try to destroy the, the space stargate that's allowing the Badoon to transport more troops onto the planet. Yeah. We find out that the male members of the FF and Archon are still alive, but they're getting their asses tortured off. The Badoon are pretty creepy, man. They are creepy. And if you can't figure it out for yourself, Sue kind of reaffirms that by saying, if they touch me again, I'll... I've never felt anything so repulsive. But they are creepy, man. They're rapey creepy. Yeah. I think they should be used more. <laughs> I think they should be used less, but okay. Yeah, I mean, these guys pop up a lot in Guardian stories. Okay, well, futuristic Guardian stories. Okay, I mean, they're they're uh, the time comes where they show up and they take over the earth. Whoa, and fuck that. And that's when the Guardians form. The OG Guardians, not the new Guardians. But throwdowns start to happen. I don't know how much time you want to spend talking about these throwdowns, but they're good. Um, before yeah. they enter battle, I, I did want to mention this. When they're going to destroy the Stargate, they're getting ready. Nightcrawler stops Logan, and he's like, Listen, when we go into battle, are you going to use your claws? And Wolverine's kind of like, Lay off, I don't hear you asking Sasha if you're what she's going to do. And killing comes with the territory, so don't ask me to hold back, because I won't, and don't try to stop me. Because you can't. And um, Nightcrawler is just really level-headed about the whole thing. And he's like, you know, we're we're not just warriors. And and Logan says, I may be too old to change, even if I wanted to. 
And Kurt says, perhaps, but you're too honorable a man not to try. This is probably my favorite exchange of the whole issue. Yeah. Like, I really think that this is probably a turning point for Logan, too. I don't, I mean, I'm kind of torn here. You know, because, um, circumstances dictate that Wolverine's approach is the right approach. True. And it's the absolute wrong time to have this conversation. But, I mean, what Nightcrawler is saying makes sense, too. And, you know, there's, assuming they survive this situation, there will be life after it. And Nightcrawler and Storm want Wolverine to have a life where he's not a killer. And I just like the fact that, like, now might not be the appropriate time, but I do enjoy the fact that they were able to have that dialogue kind of open between the two of them. I hear you, man. It's, I mean, I don't want to say Nightcrawler's wrong, but I feel like in this situation I would be in in Wolverine's In the creepy, rapey, (laughs) badoon thing, I think, yes... (laughs) Probably go in there and murder as many of them as you possibly can. Yes. If there is a race in the universe that deserves it, it is the Badoon. Males. Females are cool. They are. If you ever read Guardians of the Galaxy, the females are, like, completely different. Yeah? Yeah. I was worried you were going soft on me there for a second. Nah, man. So cut back to Storm and, and Sue, and they are witnessing Reed being tortured. And it's too much for Susan to take. She lashes out. The jig is up. They're exposed. The rest of the the backup squad springs into action. The Badoon unleashed the monster of the Badoon, which I've come across in Guardians reading. This thing is badass. Yeah. I want to say this just made an appearance in the, the... Oh, yeah, in the most recent Guardians of the Galaxy issue. They fought like ten of these. Yeah. And I didn't realize there were that many. Oh, no, no, no. It was Gamora herself, by herself, fought off like five of them. Which is kind of bullshit. But I guess that's how awesome she is. Whatever. They unleash it, and there's a really great fight between Colossus and Cyclops and Kitty and the monster. Meanwhile, Nightcrawler's tearing up some Badoon, and Wolverine's about to get his opportunity to unleash on them. But Susan frees the FF. Colossus gets hammered by the monster, the Badoon, in his first encounter with it. Yeah. The regular Badoon are just helpless against him. Like, they're piling on him ten at a time and shooting him with their blasters and doing no damage at all. The monster Badoon looks like that He-Man toy that had the jaw. Trap jaw. Yeah. Yeah, he does. But the thing just grabs Colossus by the arm and throws him through a wall and he disappears. Cyclops tries to blast the thing, but he's overcome. And Kitty's like, I'll just phase and I'll be safe. Whatever. But uh the thing keeps coming for her, and when Colossus regains consciousness and sees that, he loses his damn mind. Yeah. And punches the thing like it has never been punched before. And they're thrown out through a wall, out of the palace from a mile up. And then a, in a four-panel sequence, you see them kind of disappear, <laughs> much the way uh, Wiley Coyote does when he's got an anvil dropped on him. And then they impact the ground at the end, leaving a mile-wide crater from which only Colossus emerges in a full-on Berserker rage. Yep. This is my favorite Colossus. Berserker Colossus is the best. So whenever the thought bubble, or whenever the word bubble gets 
shade. I mean, it's almost dark Phoenix esque, and he and he doesn't call yeah. her Catherine. He doesn't call her Kate. He calls her Katarina. He screams, yeah. "Leave Katarina alone!" That's right. And then these two are falling for each other fast and furious, and I love it. And uh, for Jerry's comic crush, when uh, Colossus comes out of that pit, his uh, <laughs> his costume has been strategically torn everywhere. So. Yeah, to is. answer your question of does his entire body turn to steel? Yes, indeed. We already had that question answered in a recent issue. Well, not that recent now, but issue of um, Cable and X Force <laughs> when Colossus unfortunately hooks up with that slut Domino. They were a nice couple, I'll admit. So the tide is turning for the good guys. Oh yeah, and they're like, we're about to get up out of here. But Colossus does the opposite. He's like, I gotta get back to my friends. I'm going back into the fight. And he notices that, uh, the Badoon are kind of piling on trying to keep him away from something. And that something he realizes in the, is in the basement, which is where the FF and the rest of the X-Men also end up. And it turns out there's an energy generator there that the leader of the Badoon has set to self-destruct. And through the most crazily engineered method of stopping the self-destruct sequence. They managed to pull it off using Sue's force field to guide Cyclops's eye beams to destroy some circuit panel while Colossus and the Thing are holding the firing pins back. It's nuts. It's comics. It's awesome. So they win. And Archon's world is free again. Fortunately, Nightcrawler was pretty beat up. Which they don't show on panel. No. Nope. But his efforts at destroying... Oh, he did destroy that Stargate single-handedly. Forgot to mention that. Yeah. So that pretty much saved their bacon. Because if he hadn't done that, reinforcements were about to show up and ruin the day. At the end, we get to see the Thing and Colossus in an arm wrestling match. Best of three, and they're tied one-to-one. When Kitty comes wandering in, distracting Colossus with her beauty, and a laughing thing wins the wrestling match. Also distracted is Archon by a very lovely fetching storm, and they profess their love for each other. Wait, no, hang on, because this was awesome. And it was I know one what of those moments say. I know what where you're gonna I was say. like, holy shit, all of my bitching for years was for nothing. Because <laughs> yes. Claremont, as she's kissing Archon, the 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 um, narration block is her thoughts drift back across the years to a dry, dusty African plain, to a girl and a boy, Aurora, Windrider, and Prince T'Challa of Wakanda, and the love they shared for a fleeting moment. Duty took him away from her as it now does Archon, and then as now she would not, could not follow. And I was like, fuck me because all like whenever when the whole fucking T'Challa thing happened I was like oh it's totally forced yeah and then to go back and like realize that like is it ever mentioned anywhere else this is what I get for not reading these annuals I wanted to ask you because I feel like it was I couldn't come up with where it seems like that scene happened they team up in a Marvel team up issue Basically, what I learned in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 5 was that I should not complain about things that I don't know the full story of, because clearly, since November of 1981, Claremont 
at least had the idea that they were in a relationship at some point. What was it you said before? Know your roots? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I get. But I thought that was pretty cool. I thought so, too. Editors note the story of Storm and Black Panther's first meeting was told in Marvel Team-Up, number 100, written by Chris Claremont and drawn by John Byrne in 1980. Sadly, we missed this in our reread, and we will be revisiting it at some point. But we don't want to take away from this moment she has with Archon. No. Because um, unlike the Doctor Doom thing, which was a little weird, this is equally out of the blue. Yes. But um But they did hit it off in Annual 3. They did. And um, she's kind of longing. Like, she sees Peter and Kitty... And she's longing for a relationship like that. She's never had it. And she like she feels like she's falling for Archon. And he's feeling the same way. But they know that they're duty-bound to their their people. And that it wouldn't be right to ask the other to right. join them. And they couldn't leave to join the other. So they say, you know, while I have feelings for you, it, it can never be. And it's kind of a bummer. But kind of cool. And Archon's like, no strings. Deal. Yeah. <laughs> Man, there's so much good stuff out there to read, Sean. I I mean, I know we talk, We said we weren't going to talk about Are this. Are we going here? But, well, we don't have to go too deep. But okay. I feel like I want to spend more time exploring this stuff that I missed as a kid. You know, I, even though comics were only 60 cents when I was buying them, I only had so many 60 cents to go around. I understand. You know, so things like Marvel Team-Up, I couldn't afford that. Yeah. I would have bought everything if I could have afforded it, but, you know, this, and so Marvel Team-Up something I don't have in my collection. So I'm going to have to track these down and yeah. read them. I mean, knowing... Knowing that there's champions issues out there that Byrne drew, that there's Marvel team ups that Claremont and Byrne worked on, Iron Fists, you know, like I want to spend some time hanging out with those issues and, and reading Marvel two two and one and there's so much. Yeah. There's so much. And on days like today when I feel like I'm not getting everything out of today's comics that I want, it feels easier to go back and and want to spend some time with those. I agree. I want to read that Marvel team up number 100. And yeah. Speaking of issues that might have fallen under people's radars that they should revisit, we're going to dive into Marvel fanfare number one. X-Men! Sean, I have a complete run of Marvel fanfare. I did not buy them from issue number one. The first one I bought was, I want to say it was number 22. Okay. It was an Iron Man story where he fights Dr. Octopus, of all people. Sounds cool. But it was the first one I had ever seen on the shelf. And these Marvel fanfare issues were direct market only. It was one of the first things that they did direct market. It was this, um, Micronauts, a couple other things were direct market. They were ex experimenting with doing that. And the idea was that this would be an upscale magazine for discerning comic fans, wow. where they would bring in the best artists, the best writers, 
and just tell cool ass stories and long form high quality paper printing processes and that is exactly what they delivered in 1981 with Marvel Fanfare number one. First issue features Spider-Man and Angel with Spider-Man in the clutches of a giant pteranodon. And the whole thing is drawn and colored by Michael Golden. Hell yeah. And that will prepare us for the rest of the issue, at least the part of the issue that we're going to talk about. The first 20 pages of which are a story told by Chris Claremont and Michael Golden, who does all of the art chores. Yep. Penciled, inked, colored by Michael Golden. And I don't think this is quite up to what he did in that Avengers annual, but it is a good-looking book. Yeah. You want to do some talking? He, he Well, it did, um... It opens up with, uh, Miss Anderson, who you might remember from, uh, the Neil Adams run when Sauron was first introduced. She was, uh... Uh, Tanya Anderson. Yes. Mm -hmm. She was the young girl who was, I don't know... Carl Lyko saved her when they were kids from attacking Pteranodons when they stumbled into the Savage Land. Yes. And that's how he became cursed. Is Sauron, but they grew to love each other. It was a forbidden love because her father forbade it, saying she was too good for him. So she shows up because she wants to uh, get Warren Worthington to go down there because she's interested in tracking down Carl Lycos. She uh, helicopters into uh, Angel's Airy in New Mexico, and she runs into. She's met at the helipad by Candy Southern. A very good-looking Michael Golden-drawn Candy Southern. Yes. Yes. I I won't say any more. She looks great. (laughs) Comics crush. Just everything in the whole set. Like, his whole place looks cool. Like, it just looks... Warren's got a sweet path. He... Warren Worthington has game. I'll give him that. He's flying around with his eagle buddies. Yep. Fucking love, like when you turn the page, there's an entire page where like Tanya's basically just explaining, like recapping Soren's origin and how Carl saved her. But I just love the fact that like time was given to this stuff. I mean, if we're talking about like looking to the past and like finding some things uh, about modern comics that I don't like as much as like this is one of the things that's really missing is like great recaps of like in story recaps not just a fucking recap page of just like this is what you missed you don't need to check it out because we've got it all spelled out it's just like this is good this is fun so we're we discussed five issues in in this episode that we're doing today Um, I think all five of them have a one page recap in story yeah which might be excessive, but at the same time, it's like, I really, like, that's the problem, is like, I feel like today someone would look at that and be like, geez, that's excessive, it's one page that couldn't have been, but the fact that you get to see Michael Golden draw and Neil pay homage Adams story. to Neil Adams stuff, it's yeah. great, and like, you're given this opportunity, and later on, one of the artists is Paul Smith, and it's like, so you get his take on some of this stuff, mm-hmm. and it's just all really good, and I kind of really miss that. 
kind of like when Byrne revisited the X Men's past. Yeah. In that recap issue. Yeah. Yeah. Getting him see him draw all that shit. Yeah, man. And and she reveals that the last that Angel had I thought this was really weird that that Tanya comes to Angel for help because of all of the X Men she could have asked. Angel has the worst relationship with Sauron. Right. Because if for those of you who aren't familiar with their past, um, go back and check out episode 11 of Great Expectations, where we talked with Greg Turner about these Neil Adams issues. Uh, the last... They, so, Sauron got an angel's head, hypnotized him, and freaked him out. And the last that Tanya... Isn't it fucking sad that, like... Like that, Sauron getting in his head just that little bit that he did fucked him up so bad. And like knowing what happens to him. Like you thought the Sauron thing was bad, dude? <laughs> yeah. What a bummer. Well, it definitely scarred him. But uh it's nothing compared to what's coming. But so the last that, that uh Angel and Tanya and the rest of the original X-Men outside of Cyclops saw of Sauron was that he had reverted to Carl Lycos's form and he threw himself off a cliff to destroy himself so that he wouldn't victimize Tanya. Right. And she tried to stop him. Iceman put up an ice wall so she wouldn't fall to her death. So she thought he was dead for years now. And so does, uh, so does and, Warren. And so does Warren. Turns out he fell maybe 10 feet onto a, a, a plateau and recovered, wound up in the Savage Land. Which is a whole nother tale told by Claremont and Byrne, starting in issue 113. But um, she she finds this picture in the paper of Kazar and Zabu, and standing next to Kazar is a man who looks just like her true love, Carl Lycos. And she's like, Warren, she's, he's still alive. I can't live knowing he's still alive out there somewhere. I have to find him and you have to help me. I love the fact that she offers him a million dollars to go towards <laughs> his favorite charity. Yeah. And he turns that down, but when she mentions, like, love, she's like, he's my true love. Can't you understand that? But that's what gets him to go. And I just want to point out that he has the biggest nipple I've ever seen in this one panel. <laughs> it's so big. So I was looking at candy in the next panel, but yeah. you were clearly enamored well, by. Yeah, I mean, it drew me away from candy. So His are definitely you. bigger than hers. That's what I'm saying. Fair enough. <laughs> so then we cut to New York. The, the Daily, Daily Bugle. Bugle. J. Jonah Jameson being a dick. Jameson gets wind of, of this story and works out a deal with Worthington to get the world exclusive on the story. And he's sending Peter Parker along to get it. And Parker's like, no way. Don't you remember the last time I was in the Savage Land? I almost died. And uh, he extorts a lot of money out of J. Jonah. And uh, he ends up on the helicopter, which, surprising, or unsurprisingly, if you've ever read an X-Men yeah. issue, crashes. I don't know when this happened. I was like, just once, I want to see someone land in the Savage Land. That's my goal. From now on, that's my goal in the reread. 
Yeah. I want at one point to see if someone land correctly. You know what this kind of put me in mind of? They're being flown in by the U.S. military. This put me in mind a little bit of the um, Frank Cho Savage Wolverine. Okay. Where Wolverine goes in with the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. That was my favorite arc of that book. I love that. Yeah. I, I kind of wonder if he had he had read this. Maybe. As part of his research. There was a lot of research done, because that was the one everybody was complaining about, because Wolverine said cripes a lot. But then when you go back, it's like Wolverine says that every four pages in this Claremont stuff. Anyways, we're not talking about Wolverine. We're talking about the true hero, Peter Parker, Warmworth. <laughs> That's right. Angel saves Tanya. Peter's left on his own to plummet to his death, but fortunately he's wearing his web shooters. Fashions a makeshift parachute with his webs and, uh, and lands himself. And they find themselves outside of Garrox Dome City, where they, the X-Men face Garrox in issue 113 through 116. The same Garrox we just spoke about in our last episode. Yep. I love that, but like these characters that like in the time period when I was growing up reading comic books, like really weren't around now have such like a huge history, like Archon and Garak, like all these characters where I'm like, ah, even the thing New Mutant told us about Zaladane. Yeah. You know, like never knew that. Yeah. That's awesome. Zaladane, who we'll be seeing very shortly. They get attacked by mutates. Yeah, man, the mutates show up again. And the first sign that they're there, is Warren, who's, who's fighting some, uh, some guys on, on Pteranodon back. He's doing very well, and all of a sudden he gets really dizzy. <laughs> and he gets netted. Uh, Spider-Man, or I'm sorry, Peter and, and Tanya are trapped on a cliff against a river, and he just shoves her off. <laughs> a great panel where you just see his arm and her flying off the side of the cliff. Um, and that frees him to get into costume as Spider-Man. He starts whipping ass, but then he, too, is overcome. Oh, by barbarous. So, uh, the dudes are taken captive by the mutates. And, uh, Tanya finally recovers in the river, and she's running and trips and looks up and just sees this menacing T-Rex looking down at her. And the angle that it's looking down at, like, like just looking down with its eye, it's so good, yeah. man. That is, it looks like it's smiling at her. I gotta admit, um, I was really happy to read these because when I was younger, a few of my favorite episodes of the cartoon dealt with the mutates. Uh huh. And I never saw them in the comics that I read as a kid. Oh, right. Like it was just one of That's those. That's interesting things like, that they would pick something that, and they were like a really it. big part of it. And so it was one of those things where it's like, I just couldn't, like, where did they come from, you know? Uh huh. And so reading this, at least, like, you know, seeing some guy named Brainiac. I don't want to name a character. <laughs> What's a brainchild? Brainchild. So we should recap uh, the roll call. Um, brainchild seems to be their leader of the group. And there's Amphibious, the frog-looking guy. Yeah. Barbarous is a forearm. This is like the predecessor of Liefeld's forearm. Yeah. It's pretty much what the dude is. And then there's the giant blind guy who's super strong and fast named... 
What's that guy's name? Gaza. Uh. And then finally, Vertigo, who uh, will stick around long enough to fuck up the X-Men shit yeah. in future issues, which we've already discussed on a previous episode with Chris Yost. Yes. Brainchild fucking blast them with some... Yeah, they've got them strapped to this machine, which is... Uh, what's it called? The uh, Genetic Transformer, the same machine that Magneto used to evolve the, the mutates. They unleash this this weapon on Spider-Man. They've reversed the setting on it so that instead of evolving things, it devolves them. And they shoot Spider-Man with it and fade to black as he screams. X-Men! Issue 2 of Marvel Fanfare is the same deal. Uh, Claremont and Golden again. Um, the cover of Issue 2 is creepy. We see Kazar being attacked by a giant humanoid spider in Spider-Man's costume. Oh, and then in the background, I never noticed yeah, this. Sauron and... You see Sauron and the mutates looking on. It's creepy. So cut back to the uh, menacing T-Rex and Tanya, who was just adorable, by the way. Yep, she's about to get it. She's about to be eaten when Kazar and Zabu show up. And they smack that T-Rex around. Along with the help of the fall people. Who are, happen to be there as well. For reasons that will soon be explained. They do the quick one page recap just in case you missed issue number one. And then Tanya is reunited with Carl Lycos. Yeah. So awesome. And it's beautiful. Here's where things get kind of sad because um Kazar and and Carl have brought the the fall people and their chief Tonga to um to the dome city they're heading to the dome city to attack Zaladane and the mutates and put them down but their little campsite that they've erected is attacked by the mutates and Angel who has been transformed into half eagle, half human. <laughs> when I flipped to that panel, that cracked me up. He looks like a giant chicken. He looks like Beak. He does look a little like Beak. But he has large talons. Oh my god, Spider-Man looks so creepy. Yeah, Spider-Man ends up facing off against Kazar. And he is really creepy. Zabu steps in and helps him out. And normally, most things are not a match for Zabu, but Spider-Man tears Zabu up and yeah. is about to do the same to Kazar when Spider-Man's human self kind of gets a hold of himself and walks away from the whole fight. Angel runs off with Tanya, and the, the warriors of the Mutates retreat, leaving Kazar's army in ruins. 11 dead and 19 wounded. But most of those will die in the morning. Yep. It sucks, man. So Tonga and his people are forced to retreat, leaving Kazar and Carl to carry on by themselves. But the, the really sad part of this is um, 
this is the last time you will see Tonga alive in the X universe. Um, some time will elapse at the end of this story, and in the meantime, in the Kazar title, he's killed. No. Oh. For as much as I love the Savage Land, I should read more old Kazar. Yeah, man. I'm feeling the same way. Yeah. I really like the, the Wade Kubert stuff that they just released a few years ago in trade, but. Uh huh. Should go back. Yeah, I, I mean, it's go gonna, it's here. gonna look like that. It's Brent Anderson penciled, so it's gonna look great. Yeah. And, uh, I, yeah, I, I haven't read it either, and I, I do want to. Add that to the list of things I'm dying to get to. And subtract one more thing from the list of things I'm putting up with now. Yes. <laughs> so, now it's Tanya's turn to be strapped to the devolving table. <laughs> Carl and, and, uh, and Kazar burst in like the Kool-Aid man to save the day. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and Carl busts out his strap to lay them busters down, but uh, Vertigo's there again to mess him up. He does manage to get a shot off, and he creases Vertigo's skull. Zabu steps in. Oh, he's fighting Barbarous. <laughs> and Kazar doesn't like his cat being hit. Nope. So he cracks a rock over Barbarous's skull. And the tide is definitely turning in their favor. Even Spider-Man shows up to help out. But maybe he's not really helping out because he throws Barbarus into the machine, destroying it, trapping him in his devolved state. Yeah. And that causes the story to turn because Carl Lycos, who has been knocked unconscious previously, awakens and realizes that since they're now mutated, he can draw out their mutant energy using his vampirism power and hopefully return them to their normal state. And it works. It works yeah. on it he works on Spider Man. Tanya too. Uh-huh. Gets her back. And Angel. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's been forced to absorb so much energy that he becomes Sauron. God, Sauron is so fucking cool looking. Look at that. So you've got... You're missing out. This I understand this is audio, but right now we are looking at a sweet Michael Golden Sauron. And it's awesome. And you should be jealous, or you should get the issues, and you should look at it with us. Do it. So the story ends with Sauron running away with plans of world domination. Yeah. The second he becomes Sauron, Carl Lycos is wiped away. I mean, Carl, surprisingly, is a good man. He was not portrayed that way by Roy Thomas in the, no. in the early X-Men run. But that was because he had given in to his vampiristic tendencies. But when he's not falling victim to that, he's actually a good man. But that's all wiped away when he becomes Sora. Kazar sends Angel and Spider-Man home to get medical treatment. And Tanya swears to stay there to, to find Carl at all costs. With the help of Kazar. It's true love, man. And that's where the issue ends. And you assume when issue three begins that that's where it will pick up. But it doesn't. X-Men! Kazar is gone in issue three. Kazar has, has run off 
with uh, Zabu and, and Shanna on some other adventure. And we also don't see Tanya anywhere in here. Instead, it's Angel who calls for help from the X-Men. And they fly down. This issue is also, um, just so we're, it's no longer Michael Golden drawing it. Oh, it's now Dave you. Cockrum. And Bob McLeod is inking. Jim Novak's the editor. Glennis Wine is the colorist. Al Migram is the editor. Al Milgram. Milgram, sorry. There you go. My bad. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But thank you. I, I skipped right over that. I was too excited. And now, Sean, I just want to point out the difference between Bob McCloud inking Dave Cockrum and Joe Rubenstein inking Cockrum. This book is Cockrum at his very best. Like, this is the best-looking inks over Cockrum that I've seen since his earlier run on the X-Men. It looks great. They're... They fly into a very unnatural blizzard that almost crashes the plane. But here you go. Storm successfully lands the Blackbird. Well, I guess my mission is done. Okay, let's wrap up. Good night, everybody. Somebody landed in the Savage Land. (laughs) Barely. And uh, did you pick up on the the tail fin of the Blackbird? It's got this awesome X-Men logo on it. That's badass. I don't remember seeing that on there before. Or since. Right. But it's cool. Plane's probably going to crash at some point. That's why. (laughs) They couldn't afford paint. They're still putting the the mansion together from Kitty's escapades. Yep. So they're taken a mile down into a a U.S. um, Army base. And uh, they meet the troops that are going to take them in to the Savage Land. We get a recap from Warren, who's waiting for them there. As they drink their hot chocolate and <laughs> the base suddenly undergoes an earthquake that brings the roof down and Colossus saves the day by holding it up long enough for them to rescue most of the people. And there's a really cool panel during the rescue um, where all the lights have gone out and you see Nightcrawler completely transparent. Really cool. Yeah. Um, Storm's freaking out because of her claustrophobia. But she she manages to make it through, and uh, they mention that these earthquakes have been hitting every single base. They've got a ring of these bases around the Savage Land, and they've all been undergoing these earthquakes. And uh, they don't have the, the manpower left now to accompany the X-Men in, so they've, they're forced to go into the Savage Land alone. And they are immediately set upon by Gaza, and they whoop him. But it turns out it was just a trap, and the rest of the mutates show up. And there's a big knockdown drag out, which it looks like the X-Men win, but it's just, it's just the mutates setting them up again. And Sauron shows up. That son of a bitch. And he uses his, his hypno eyes on them. Turns Eight. them into monsters against Angel, like he did back in the Neil Adams run. That's right. Angel sees what's about to happen and he runs as fast as he can. To really bum me out. Well, he did the I mean, right I, thing. I, I mean, he would have fallen victim to it if he right. hadn't run. But uh, he gets out of there and he draws Sauron away. And remember Sauron's uh, susceptibility to cold. So he flies toward an Arctic breeze, an Antarctic breeze. Sauron sees what's up and he leaves. But Angel is trapped in the cold himself and his wings freeze and he plummets. 
The other four X-Men, oh, minus Cyclops and Kitty, I should point out, because Cyclops was down with a cold, and Kitty was taking care of him. Yeah? He called in sick, Sean. Cyclops called in sick. That's a bummer. That doesn't seem like leadership material to me. It doesn't. So now we've got the X-Men strapped to the table. Of course. And they are going to be devolved. But not in European briefs, which is a real bummer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, usually they are. Usually when they get chained up and stuff, they're usually stripped down to their underwear, which I know one fan loves. (laughs) That's right. Only if they're European, though. You know, surprisingly, even Storm's costume is intact. Yeah. That almost never happens. When does that happen? So Sauron has worked out a way that he can collect their mutant energy when he's hungry and then devolve them so that they're helpless and they don't have their mutant powers and then re-evolve them when he gets hungry again. Yeah. So they're trapped in this cycle. X-Men! Issue 4 introduces to the X-Universe Mr. Paul Smith. Now we saw Paul Smith's debut at Marvel in issue 1. He did a backup story that was Daredevil. Yes. Saving a uh, Christmas mall uh, Santa Claus. And uh, But this is his, I think this is his second art for Can Marvel. He did the cover as well. He did the cover as well, which is a wraparound. Yeah, all these covers are really great wraparound covers. Yeah, man. This this work he did in, in Marvel Fanfare is absolutely stunning. It's inked by Terry Austin. So you know it's going to look great. And interestingly, I think Austin's inking style here, you see his versatility. Because I think this looks different than the way he yeah. inks Burn. And it's different from what he did with Perez when Perez did uh, Annual 3. It, it looks great, though, man. Absolutely fantastic. Zabu looks badass. Kazar looks awesome. And you you see that characteristic early Paul Smith face with the right the uh, you know the the long noses and um, I don't know how else to describe him, but very identifiable. And he has a unique way of drawing Aurora too. That she's just really cute. <laughs> So, but he draws a cool Sauron. Yes. So Angel, when he was um escaping Sauron, kind of like tuckered out, landed somewhere, which wound up being, luckily for him, Kazar's camp. And uh, he fills Kazar in on what Sauron's been up to in the last issue, which Kazar wasn't present for. So they try to come up with a plan where Warren will distract Sauron. So Kazar can run in there and uh, bust some skulls. That's right. It's important to point out, I guess, it's not critical to the story, but part of what's made it difficult for the X-Men to have any success is that Sauron has this like will-sapping yes. field around his base. And as they move closer to his base, it gets harder and harder to have any will to use their powers. So inside the base, they're completely helpless. And and that's what Angel is worried about. That's why they need to lure Sauron away so that Kazar can go in, since he doesn't really have any powers. He can go in and try to shut that field off. Yeah. 
But Warren's not super excited about the plan at first. He's pretty terrified of having to face Sauron again. But he sucks it up and he does it. And he's actually doing really well against Sauron. But it just takes one lock of the eyes for Sauron and, and it's all over for Warren. Yeah. I love any time we get to see Garrock's cast, like his little dome thing, you know? Yeah. Just the ruins of it. Uh, so here it gets creepy again. Yeah, we have Storm in the skimpiest of outfits. <laughs> which the only reason I bring this up is because I have a toy of that storm. Really? Yes, in that outfit. Isn't that weird? Huh. Like, of all the things they would make, like back in the 90s, the Toy Biz line, like, Storm in a Bikini. Yeah. Can I have it? Yes. Um, so, so Brainchild was left with the instruction of devolving all of the X-Men again, because Sauron had, like, supercharged himself on their energies before going to face Angel again. Yeah. So he'd be completely unstoppable. And Brainchild followed the instructions with one exception. He has the hots for Storm. So he releases her, puts her in this hottie McHotterson costume, and leaves her in his bedroom. Which is fucking creepy. He's got designs on Storm, and she's like, get the hell away from me. And... He doesn't like that, so he calls for the guards and opens the door. But he's not greeted by the guards. He's greeted by Zabu and Kazar, who free him. Who free Storm, I'm sorry. And on their way back to free the rest of the X-Men, they come across Shanna and Tanya, who have become devolved, like, ape-like humans. And uh, Kazar's pretty bummed. Yeah, I would be too. No trace remains of the woman I love, he says. Then they hear Nightcrawler scream in agony as he's devolved into this crazy demonic cat thing. Yeah, it's like a cat mixed with a bat. Cat bat. as hell. And it's Zaladane behind the controls this time. Storm does not take kindly to that. She puts on her mad face. And even though she's completely tapped out because Sauron has just drawn all of her powers... She musters enough to blow Zaladane across the room and end the threat. And they release the X-Men, and the battle is on, and the X-Men win, and like I'm sorry, Wolverine punches out the biggest threat, who is Vertigo. Yay, the X-Men win. Oh man. Other the fact that like Sauron goes and fucking drops Angel, Nightcrawler teleports him, saves him. And then uh, Storm's like, nope, Sauron, not getting away. And she knocks him down with a gust of wind. And Colossus jumps up and, like, belts Sauron right in the face. So, like, poor dude's already falling to his doom. Gonna hit rock bottom. And Colossus just, nope. And then, as that's happened, so Colossus, like, he's falling straight down. And then Colossus punches him sideways. So then he goes shooting off sideways. And then Wolverine runs up. Slashes through his wings so he can't fly anymore. I mean, they fucked him up. Oh, and don't forget, Storm didn't just hit him with wind. It was an arctic blizzard that sapped his strength. And then they dump a bunch of rocks on him. Yeah. But he just gets up from that. And then, so cool, they cut away. He says, 
The greatness of a being is measured in the quality of his foes. If so, our mutual glory is assured. Yours, of course, will be posthumous. And they cut away and show the exterior of the building like something really bad's about to happen. And then you see an explosion, but it's Storm standing over a human Carl Lycos because she done fucked him up. Yeah. The X-Men are victorious. They smash the evolving, devolving machine, and they return Carl Lycos to the X-Mansion. And they, they, the, the mutates were all devolved, and they were oh. left that way. Yes! Which is, because now I'm really curious how Vertigo winds up where she does if she's mutated that far back. Yep, Kazar decides it's the best way to handle him, though. The only other option is to put him to death. So he devolves him back into harmless pre-humanoid apes. And who knows? We're, I guess we'll find out eventually how... Lyco says that he, that he wants to be killed. Like, Wolverine ah. offers. Yeah. He says, if you really feel that way, I'd be happy to do it. But they wind up going back to the mansion and Professor Xavier believes that he cures him. That's right. He discovers that Carl had been infected when he was attacked by the Tyranodons. He was infected by a virus, and that's what gave him the powers. He was not a mutant. And he says, if I can expunge the virus, I will have cured him. And he did, or so they think. And that is the end of our story. Hell yeah. These, I thought, were very enjoyable stories beautifully drawn yeah that have no serious impact on the continuity of the x-men's world that we know of yet that we know of yet right i mean there there'll be future interactions with sauron but i understand what you're saying these are something that you could get these marvel fanfare issues and completely enjoy them as just a good fun savage land story yeah i mean for the, the the folks that are freaked out about x-men continuity there is some of that involved here but it's not necessary to enjoy the story at all it's just a nice standalone that fits in with the the big plot lines but it's separate from it what did you say between the raindrops is that yeah sure yeah magic now that's between the raindrops but um i dug it man me too. It was fun. I wouldn't put it up there as the best of anything. No. But um, I don't regret reading them. Not at all. We've got some good stuff coming up. Yeah, next up, we're going to see that old bitch again. Yeah. And that means, folks, you might be seeing Alan White again soon. That would be awesome. How about that? got Starjammer stuff coming up. Oh my gosh. Finally, we're going to get to what I've been looking forward to, the introduction of the New Mutants. Yeah. Two things I'm really excited for. Paul Smith's X-Men and the New Mutants. I'm just really psyched for both of those. So psyched. Some Brood are coming up before that. Yeah. Man going to get crazy up in here but in the next issue the next episode we'll be talking about kitty's departure for the uh massachusetts, massachusetts academy and kitty's fairy tale yep we gonna go any further than that oh yeah i mean that's only three issues so oh we're doing 10 right i don't are we 
We talked about it. We talked about going all the way up to Dracula. Okay. I yep. don't know. We might. It might be a two-parter, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. See how we're feeling. So hopefully, folks, sometime soon you'll be able to hear our episode 21.1. Editor's note, episode 21.1 is now available as part of the Earth 2 Network Anthology episode on our new home at Earth 2 dot podbean.com if you're listening to this you probably found it already and thank you and we thank you for joining us before you go i want to make a personal plea to you to go order my friend ryan brown's new image book god hates astronauts they were explaining that ryan was supposed to be on the show today that's right (laughs) ryan was supposed to join us today to discuss these Marvel fanfare issues, but he is under the weather and could not be with us. But if he were here, he would say, if you like to laugh and you like to read comic books, then by God, you should go read God Hates Astronauts. It's in this month's, first issue is in this month's um, previews. previews. Go get it. Pre-order it. Don't count on your shop to buy it. Ask for it. And buy one for your friend. Yeah. Because I love Ryan Brown, and I love you, and I want you to love Ryan Brown. Sounds good. The end. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.
at the end of issue one, that Daredevil story? Yeah. I think that's Paul Smith's first story for Marvel. I didn't read it. I only read the X-Men. It's, I mean, it's just like he saved Santa Claus from some gangsters or something. That's awesome. But, um, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up quite the way his issue of the X-Men story does, which is like the best thing he's ever drawn. Yeah? For Marvel, I think. It's pretty tight. This is pretty good. I do love me some Sauron. And that paper, right? Yeah. Did you read the editorials? I don't know. On the inside covers? I did not. Oh. He, you should have read them, man. He flames Claremont. Yeah. And then the fourth one, he's, or maybe it was the fifth one, he's like, I've been getting a lot of letters saying that I've been really mean to Chris Claremont, so I've set aside this issue's editorial for Chris's rebuttal. And then he just sits there for three panels and Chris doesn't show up. He awesome. like knocks on the door in the last panel. He's like, what? We're out of time. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. He tore him up though. Like one of them, Chris just talks his ears off. And, uh, yeah, it's just all word balloons. <laughs> 1981, he already had that reputation. That's awesome. 